Hello, and welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. My name is Cody Sullivan, and I will be your guide through this vaguely phosphorescent miasma of horror, magic, and sciences yet to be discovered. The mission of this show is to excite and entertain the imagination, to bring laughter and fright, to provide a variety of content such as classic radio drama, original and bizarre works, reviews and insights regarding certain relevant themes, comics, movies, music, occult and true crimes, all while attempting to distill the essence of the old pulp magazines of days gone by. In time, I hope you will join us in listening as often as we can produce this show, becoming your one-stop shop for all things weird and wicked. The loss of one's beloved is a timeless starting point for any work of horror. Weary minds strain their ears against the voiceless darkness of night. Is that a floorboard creaking? Or is it the shade of a dead lover returning to steal a glimpse of their living love slumber? And how does one move on, if one should even do so at all? If one's love is true, then does one endeavor to suffer in this life until a happy sign from spirit or heaven relinquishes the duty of a heavy burdened heart? That is where we begin this week, as we explore these themes through the dead words of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe's classic poem, The Raven. The Raven, Edgar Allan Poe, 1845. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more.' "'Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, "'and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. "'Eagerly I wished the morrow. "'Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, "'sorrow for the lost Lenore.' For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. 
presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, Sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. 
Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore. Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er. But whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels, he hath sent thee respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, Clasp a rare and radiant maiden to the angel's name, Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door.
his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplights o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted never more. Many of you listening out there may have fond memories of a beloved pet goldfish floating aimlessly in your home aquariums. I myself was quite fond of a beautiful white koi fish that I aptly named Koi. That's C-O-Y. Koi. And yet, who among you are repulsed by the scaly fluttering and flapping of fish fins? And who among you feel uneasy when locking eyes with the blank stare of a strangely smiling cichlid? And worse still, those who fear what mysteries remain sunken in the depths of the ocean deep? Just the idea of being in the open water incites feelings of anxiety, dread, and panic among those who are considered to be thalassophobic. While many children revel in the opportunity to visit the wondrous aquarium in Boston, Massachusetts, our next author does not. Stay tuned as we venture forth into the unsteady mind of Mr. Zachary J. Husband, a dear friend and fellow fanatic of all things weird and unnamed. <coughs> The Horror in Brine by Zachary Husband, 2017 In the inky depths of the Earth's oceans are such things as to drive the mind to real and were never meant to be viewed in the wholesome light of day. Thankfully, nature has seen fit to separate the civilized realms of man from this bleak and watery hell. While humanity possesses much learning, our curiosity tends to get the better of us and drives us to gaze upon things best left hidden. Such is my frame of mind as I consciously decide to enter the New England Aquarium. Growing up, I always knew that the fish sections of pet stores made me nervous. The dimmed lights, the droning sound of aquarium pumps, and the writhing shadows cast upon every surface were enough to make me jump at the sound of my own breath. In these places, though, the creatures were small and limited to those which could survive the inconsistencies of the amateur aquarist. Not so, I'm afraid, in the New England Aquarium. One thing must be said of this vision from my nightmares, 
I have been given fair warning. While waiting to purchase tickets, I am subjected to the bloated form of the Atlantic Harbor Seal. Breathing wholesome air while wallowing in saline squalor, these monsters appear at once canine and pison. As I summon the courage to peek through the aquarium's glass exterior, I make the mistake of looking one in the eyes and observe a fiendish intellect. I walk away knowing in my heart that the thick glass wall is for the sake of all who traverse Boston's storied streets. Horrors too numerous to fully describe await within the cavernous building. Jellyfish drift, suspended in their multitudes and ignorant to the fact that they have become a sideshow to the darkest of spectacles. Penguins plunge into icy depths impenetrable to those who crave the warmth of a summer's day or a lover's caress. Ascending the spiral, which constitutes the core of the aquarium, the clammy chill of the sea assails my skin in a way which almost distracts me from a miasmal fish stench. My body begins to tremble as I peer nervously into the gigantic central tank. A spire of coral houses, those black eyes which long not for love or home, but only to grasp, to kill, to devour. Eels wriggle their serpentine bodies without relation to their heads, their mouths agape and revealing a secondary set of jaws make their thoughts perfectly clear. You cannot unsee what you have seen today, they seem to say. You may as well go willingly into oblivion. Enormous silver fish swim in schools which care nothing for the scholarly learning, but only for that grim knowledge gained through predation. Among all these swims the greatest, and thus the saddest, dweller of the tank, the green sea turtle, whose captors call her Myrtle, but whose true name was left beneath the waves. I feel more pity for her than any creature I've seen in this dank prison. She is far older than me, perhaps even than my grandmother. What can a tank offer to a creature who has doubtless seen so much? My heart sinks as children tap the glass to vie for her attention. Her gaze is resolute, however. She plied the tides before we were born. She will do so again when we are dead. Eventually, my curiosity gets the better of me, and I decide to look for something which I know may just put me over the edge. There is... An understated tank tucked into a corner on the top floor, away from the prying eyes of tourists. It is the thing that makes me uneasy at night, as I lay in my warm bed hours from the New England Aquarium and Ocean. Huddled into a cavern is a formless blob of a rusty color. What looks like oils 
cover, its visible exterior, but it remains mostly obscured. The thing in the tank is predisposed to stealth and quiet strangulation with its suckered arms. A morbid curiosity grips me. I would like to see one of those terrible appendages, though I dread the sight more than anything I've encountered this day. Mercifully anticlimactic, the octopus refuses to move. I am simultaneously relieved and disappointed. Leaving the aquarium brings some comfort though passing through those glass doors cannot entirely erase my unease. The harbor greets me with the crashing of waves and the screeching of gulls on the prowl for carrion. While I don't live in constant terror of the dwellers of the deep, I am occasionally gripped by a dread which has no immediate rational cause. The sound of running water in a dimly lit place, or news reports of sea level rise, seek to remind me that I can't escape the waves forever. The sea is coming for us all to exact a terrible penance for our misuse of the planet, and all I can do is tremble at the thought of what it holds. And now it's time to pay the bills, so to speak. Pulp from Beyond the Veil will be right back after a word from our sponsors. These days it can be hard to keep up with the hustle and bustle of work, school, balancing out your kids' soccer games and ballet practices, and on top of it all, everybody's still gotta eat. Now, maybe your family's a little closer to the Adams family than the Camdens from Seventh Heaven, and if so, we here at Pulp have got the solution. Introducing the Ghastly Gourmet, a ship-to-your-door meal service unlike any other. All meals arrive ready to cook at your doorstep in a beautiful black matte box. Inside you'll find specially crafted dishes to shock and be savored. This week's menu includes Blackened barramundi served on a deathbed of roasted non-Euclidean carrots and wild-eyed rice, all drizzled with a beet and blood orange puree. If you're like Mr. Husband and feel an aversion to things from the deep, try our great old boar, a broiled, thick-cut, bone-in wild pork chop topped with grilled peach and bird's-eye chili salsa and served with wilted spinach and collard greens sautéed in black garlic. Ooh, as resting for the eyes as for the taste buds. These gothic-inspired meals are sure to give you goosebumps, all for the low price of $66.06 naturally. So, what are you waiting for? Log on to their website and give the hungry chefs at Ghastly Gourmet your home address today.
Ghastly Gourmet Love at First Bite. Mmm, -mm. that pork chop sounds absolutely divine. Or terribly hellacious. Take your pick. It's time now for a hot take into the realm of reality with our review series, Alone on the Couch. This week, join me as we dive into the found footage genre with a little film called Hell House, LLC, which can be found on Amazon Prime's streaming service, among other avenues. Hey guys, welcome to Alone on the Couch. Cody Sullivan here, and odds are I've got a horror movie that you've never seen, and at least I think is worth a watch. You're going to want to take a seat, especially if you're into the found footage genre. Hell House LLC is a 2016 horror film written and directed by Stephen Cognetti. And before I give you my hot take about it, I'll let you know that despite not giving a full disclosure of the plot, there might be some minor spoilers in the comments to come. It's available now for streaming for free if you are an Amazon Prime member and have access to their streaming service, Prime Video. The story follows a group of people whose main enterprise is creating those haunted houses that you see pop up every year around October and Halloween. They've had prior success in a number of locations, most recently in New York City the previous year, and have now decided to start their enterprise in a town outside the city named Abaddon. This town is completely fictitious, and Bible nerds might recognize the name Abaddon as he is one of the angels in the Old Testament, specifically the Angel of the Abyss. Now, the group is predominantly young men, uh, no surprise there. Uh, I guess in their mid to late 20s, and one young woman who ends up being the group's sole survivor of some sort of malfunction in the house. This malfunction or event took place in the basement of their haunted house, which they learned pretty much immediately was, in fact, actually a haunted inn. The event in the basement also claimed the lives of 15 participants, with a number of others injured in the stampede out of the basement. Now, before you get the wrong idea, I don't consider this a spoiler, as all this information is made evidence within the first, like, ten minutes of the film. It's revealed that these events took place five years before the current events of the movie, it is, in a way, a found footage film within a faux documentary-style news story. A reporter named Diane Graves is working on a story about Hell House and catches a break when the sole survivor of the house's creators, the woman named Sarah Havel, agrees to be interviewed about what she saw that night. What's more, this woman claims to have video evidence of the events leading up to that fateful night, as well as the footage of what happened in Hell House. The movie has a solid hook at the onset. Footage is played from a newsreel of one of the participants of Hell House attempting to enter the crowded basement. I think they're recording it on their phone, or that's what you're supposed to believe. And there are a few distant screams and spooky noises. Nothing really out of the ordinary for these kinds of places. But after just a few moments, it's clear something isn't right. 
and you see these shuffling masses halfway down the stairs at once attempt to turn around and clamber back up the steps. And there's something immediately scary about that, about watching people dissolve into hysteria as they trample one another. It's like a reminder for all the effort we collectively put in to seem civilized and orderly that at a moment's notice that facade can crumble. Anyone who's seen the footage from the real-life tragedy of the station nightclub fire will know what I mean, and if you haven't seen that footage, you probably don't want to. I've seen a lot of gruesome videos in my day, but that video takes the gold medal for worst goddamn thing on the internet. Seriously, that is, like, that is viewer beware. The performances in Hell House LLC are just alright, in my opinion. You know, there isn't a great deal of backstory to any of these characters, a few of which just fall directly into the stereotype they're molded after. There's the sophomoric main cameraman, concerned more with sex than really any other motivation. And there's the guy who's in charge who vehemently refuses to believe the house has anything wrong with it so that they can make a buck when the house opens. And thus you shouldn't expect any real evolution of personal narratives or anything like that. This is really not about those people at all. The people all die in the end, with the exception of Sarah, of course, and I think I'm right in saying that the film was shot on a practical set. That is to say, I believe it was shot in a slightly rough, slightly dilapidated inn that does give the film a big boost of immersion and realism. The creaky steps up to the upstairs bedrooms are actually there and part of the same building as the creepy barroom and the gutted kitchen. And most of the movie is spent going through this old footage of when they were creating the haunted house. And there's a lot of room-to-room -room shots that make you feel like you're witnessing these things alongside our ill-fated gang of entrepreneurs. This movie is definitely not without flaws, however. But I kind of enjoyed it. It was eerie, it had relatively few cheap jump scares, and I can't help but feel like this movie was lovingly crafted in the way only writers who direct their work can do. If you do happen to check out Hell House LLC, leave a comment telling us here at Pulp what your thoughts on it were. If it were up to me, out of ten possible screams, I'd give Hell House LLC a reasonable 6.5 out of 10. This is a good popcorn flick. Alone, or to watch casually with friends, or your partner. No need to worry about missing a line here or there. Odds are it won't affect your perception of the story much. Hell House LLC on Amazon Prime Video. Let me know what you think. And that's all for this week for Alone on the Couch. I'm Cody Sullivan. And thanks for joining me. We are steadily approaching the end of our time together. We are moving headlong into our final segment of this show. At the end of every episode, you can expect a longer story, a greater undertaking that by the nature of its length and gravity, require a serialized approach to presentation. 
These stories, while aligning with the themes of this show, will be broken down into parts to be read in episodes to come. We like to call this section, Killer Serials. In this episode, we'll be attempting to listen to and digest an oddity well-known in literary circles. Indeed, at first glance, one might be hard-pressed to find truly weird works by renowned authors. However, this artist, through his work, has made his name synonymous with the inexplicable and strange. The author we'll be reading today is Franz Kafka, a true symbol of the absurd and alienating. The word Kafkaesque can be interpreted as describing something nightmarish and oppressive, often to do with bureaucracy, such as in his work The Trial. But today we will be reading what many believe to be his master work. We'll be reading The Metamorphosis. Killer Serials The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka, 1915, translation by Ian Johnston. One morning as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. He lay on his armor-hard back and saw, as he lifted his head up a little, his brown, arched abdomen divided up into rigid, bow-like sections. From this height, the blanket, just about ready to slide off completely, could hardly stay in place. His numerous legs, pitifully thin in comparison to the rest of his circumference, flickered helplessly before his eyes. What's happened to me? he thought. It was no dream. His room, a proper room for a human being, only somewhat too small, lay quietly between the four well-known walls. Above the table, on which an unpacked collection of sample cloth goods was spread out, Samso was a traveling salesman, hung the picture which he had cut out of an illustrated magazine a little while ago and set in a pretty gilt frame. It was a picture of a woman with a fur hat and a faux boa. She sat erect there, lifting up in the direction of the viewer a solid fur muff into which her entire forearm disappeared. Gregor's glance then turned to the window. The dreary weather, the raindrops were falling audibly down on the metal window ledge, made him quite melancholy. Why don't I keep sleeping for a little while longer and forget all this foolishness, he thought. But this was entirely impractical, for he was used to sleeping on his right side, and in his present state, he couldn't get himself into this position. No matter how hard he threw himself onto his right side, he always rolled again onto his back. He must have tried it a hundred times, closing his eyes so that he would not have to see the wriggling legs, and gave up only when he began to feel a light, dull pain in his side, which he had never felt before. Oh, God, he thought, what a demanding job I've chosen. Day in and day out on the road, the stresses of trade are much greater than the work going on at the head office. And in addition to that, I have to deal with the problems of traveling, the worryings about train connections, irregular bad food, 
temporary and constantly changing human relationships which never come from the heart. To hell with it all. He felt a slight itching on the top of his abdomen. He slowly pushed himself on his back closer to the bedpost so that he could lift his head more easily. He found the itchy part, which was entirely covered with small white spots. He did not know what to make of them and wanted to feel the place with a leg, but he retracted it immediately, for the contact felt like a cold shower all over him. He slid back again into his earlier position. This getting up early, he thought, makes a man quite idiotic. A man must have his sleep. Other traveling salesmen live like harem women. For instance, when I come back to the inn during the course of the morning to write up the necessary orders, these gentlemen are just sitting down to breakfast. If I were to try that with my boss, I'd be thrown out on the spot. Still, who knows whether that mightn't be really good for me. If I didn't hold back for my parents' sake, I would have quit ages ago. I would have gone to the boss and told him just what I think from the bottom of my heart. He would have fallen right off his desk. How weird it is to sit up at the desk and talk down to the employee from way up there. The boss has trouble hearing, so the employee has to step up quite close to him. Anyway, I haven't completely given up that hope yet. Once I've got together the money to pay off the parents' debt to him, that should only take another five or six years, I'll do it for sure. Then... I'll make the big break. In any case, right now I have to get up. My train leaves at five o'clock. And he looked over at the alarm clock ticking away by the chest of drawers. Good God, he thought. It was half past six and the hands were going quietly on. It was past the half hour, already nearly quarter two. Could the alarm have failed to ring? One saw from the bed that it was properly set for four o'clock. Certainly it had rung. Yes, but was it possible to sleep through this noise that made the furniture shake? Now it's true he'd not slept quietly, but evidently he had slept all the more deeply. Still, what should he do now? The next train left at seven o'clock. To catch that one, he would have to go in a mad rush. The sample collection wasn't packed up yet, and he really didn't feel particularly fresh and active. And even if he caught the train, there was no avoiding a blow-up with the boss because the firm's errand boy would have waited for the five o'clock train and reported the news of his absence long ago. He was the boss's minion without backbone or intelligence. Well then, what if he reported in sick? But that would be extremely embarrassing and suspicious because during his five years' service, Gregor hadn't been sick even once. The boss would certainly come with the doctor from the health insurance company and would reproach his parents for their lazy son and cut short all objections with the insurance doctor's comments. For him, everyone was completely healthy, but really lazy about work. And besides, would the doctor in this case be totally wrong? Apart from a really excessive drowsiness after the long sleep, Gregor felt 
quite well. And even had a really strong appetite. As he was thinking all this over in the greatest haste, without being able to make the decision to get out of bed, the alarm clock was indicating exactly quarter to seven. There was a cautious knock on the door by the head of the bed. Gregor? A voice called. It was his mother. It's quarter to seven. Don't you want to be on your way? A soft voice. Gregor was startled when he heard his voice answer. It was clearly and unmistakably his earlier voice, but in it was intermingled, as if from below, an irrepressibly painful squeaking which left the words positively distinct only in the first moment and distorted them in the reverberation so that one didn't know if one had heard correctly. Gregor wanted to answer in detail and explain everything, but in these circumstances he confined himself to saying, Yes, yes, thank you, mother. I'm getting up right away. Because of the wooden door, the change in Gregor's voice was not really noticeable outside. So his mother calmed down with this explanation and shuffled off. However, as a result of the short conversation, the other family members became aware of the fact that Gregor was unexpectedly still at home. And already his father was knocking on one side door weakly, but with his fist. Gregor? Gregor! He called out. What's going on? And after a short while, he urged him on again in a deeper voice. Gregor! Gregor! At the other side, however, his sister knocked lightly. Gregor, are you alright? Do you need anything? Gregor directed his answers in both directions. I'll be ready right away. He made an effort with the most careful articulation, and by inserting long pauses between the individual words to remove everything remarkable from his voice. His father turned back to his breakfast. However, the sister whispered, Gregor, open the door, I beg you. Gregor had no intention of opening the door, but congratulated himself on his precaution, acquired from traveling, of locking all doors during the night, even at home. First, he wanted to stand up quietly and undisturbed, get dressed, above all, have breakfast, and only then consider further action. For, he noticed this clearly, by thinking things over in bed he would not reach a reasonable conclusion. He remembered that he had already felt a light pain or other in bed. Perhaps the result of an awkward lying position, which later turned out to be purely imaginary when he stood up and was eager to see how his present fantasies would gradually dissipate that the change in his voice was nothing other than the onset of a real chill, an occupational illness of the commercial traveler. Of that, he had not the slightest doubt. It was very easy to throw aside the blanket. He needed only to push himself up a little, and it fell by itself. But to continue 
was difficult, particularly because he was so unusually wide. He needed arms and hands to push himself upright. Instead of these, however, he only had many small limbs, which were incessantly moving with the different motions, and which, in addition, he was unable to control. If he wanted to bend one of them, then it was the first to extend itself, and if he finally succeeded doing with this limb what he wanted, in the meantime, all the others, as if left free, moved around in an excessively painful agitation. But I must not stay in bed uselessly, said Gregor to himself. At first he wanted to get off the bed with the lower part of his body. This lower part, which he incidentally had not yet looked at, and which he also couldn't picture clearly, proved itself too difficult to move. The attempt went so slowly, when, having become almost frantic, he finally hurled himself forward with all his force, and without thinking, he chose his direction incorrectly and he hit the lower bedpost hard. The violent pain he felt revealed to him that the lower part of his body was at the moment probably the most sensitive. Thus he tried to get his upper body out of the bed first and turned his head carefully toward the edge of the bed. He managed to do this easily and in spite of its width and weight his body mass at last slowly followed the turning of his head. But as he finally raised his head outside the bed in the open air, he became anxious about moving forward any further in this matter, for if he allowed himself eventually to fall by this process, it would take a miracle to prevent his head from getting injured. And at all costs, he must not lose consciousness right now. He preferred to remain in bed. However, after a similar effort, while he lay there again sighing as before and once again saw his small limbs fighting one another, if anything worse than before, and didn't see any chance of imposing quiet and order on this arbitrary movement, he told himself again that he couldn't possibly remain in bed and that it might be the most reasonable thing to sacrifice everything if there was even the slightest hope of getting himself out of bed in the process. At the same moment, however, he didn't forget to remind himself from time to time of the fact that calm, indeed the calmest, reflection might be better than the most confused decisions. At such moments he directed his gaze as precisely as he could towards the window, but unfortunately there was little confident cheer to be had from a glance at the morning mist which concealed even the other side of the narrow street. It's already seven o'clock, he told himself, at the latest striking of the alarm clock. Already seven o'clock, and still such a fog. And for a little while longer he lay quietly with weak breathing, as if perhaps waiting for normal and natural conditions to reemerge out of the complete stillness. But then he said to himself, before it strikes a quarter past seven, whatever happens, I must be completely out of bed. Besides, by then someone from the office will arrive to inquire about me, because the office will be open before seven o'clock. 
and he made an effort then to rock his entire body length out of the bed with a uniform motion. If he let himself fall out of bed in this way, his head, which in the course of the fall he intended to lift up sharply, would probably remain uninjured. His back seemed to be hard. Nothing would really happen to that as a result of the fall. His greatest reservation was a worry about the loud noise which the fall must create, and which presumably would arouse, if not fright, than at least concern on the other side of all the doors. However, it had to be tried. As Gregor was in the process of lifting himself half out of bed, the new method was more of a game than an effort. He needed only to rock with a constant rhythm. It struck him how easily all this would be if someone were to come to his aid. Two strong people, he thought of his father and the servant girl, would have been quite sufficient. They would only have had to push their arms underneath his arched back to get him out of bed, to bend down with their load, and then merely to exercise patience and care that he completed the flip onto the floor, where his diminutive legs would then, he hoped, acquire a purpose. Now, quite apart from the fact that the doors were locked, should he really call out for help? In spite of all his distress, he was unable to suppress a smile at this idea. He had already got to the point where, with a stronger rocking, he maintained his equilibrium with difficulty. And very soon, he would finally have to decide, for in five minutes it would be a quarter past seven. Then there was a ring at the door of the apartment. That's someone from the office, he told himself. And he almost froze while his small limbs only danced around all the faster. For one moment, everything remained still. They aren't opening, Gregor said to himself, caught up in some absurd hope. But, of course then, as usual, the servant girl, with her firm tread, went to the door and opened it. Gregor needed to hear only the visitor's first word of greeting to recognize immediately who it was. The manager himself. Why was Gregor the only one condemned to work in a firm where, at the slightest lapse, someone immediately attracted the greatest suspicion? Were all the employees then collectively one and all scoundrels? Was there then among them no truly devoted person who, if he failed to use just a couple hours in the morning for office work, would become abnormal from pangs of conscience and really be in no state to get out of bed? Was it really not enough to let an apprentice make inquiries if such questioning was even necessary? Must the manager himself, and in the process must it be demonstrated to the entire innocent family that the investigation of these suspicious circumstances could only be entrusted to the intelligence of the manager? And more as a consequence of the excited state in which this idea put Gregor than as a result of an actual decision, he swung himself with all his might out of the bed. There was a loud thud, but not a real crash. The fall was absorbed somewhat by the carpet, and, in addition, his back was more elastic than Gregor had thought. For that reason, the dull noise was not quite so conspicuous, but he had not held his head up with sufficient care and had hit it. 
He turned his head, irritated and in pain, and rubbed it on the carpet. Someone has fallen in there, said the manager in the next room on the left. End part one. Killer Serials And with that, we have reached the conclusion of our maiden voyage into the unknown. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and will continue traveling down this loathsome road with us together. Please feel free to leave your comments or suggestions for future episodes, perhaps a short story that you've written. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast to remain updated on our progress in the months ahead. The road stretches far and wide, and there's no one we'd rather join us in this adventure but you, the listeners. Please send your regards our way via email at pulpfrombeyond at gmail. Even if it's a word of greeting and where you're listening from, we'd love to hear from you. It is my sincere hope that this show will be able to evolve and change with feedback and contributions from listeners like you, and know that all that we do here is for your express entertainment purposes. Thank you for your time, and may all the shadows about your life remain empty. My name is Cody Sullivan, and you've been listening to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Until next time... Sweet dreams.